Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. In this episode, we're talking about the art of translation. With me today is speculative fiction author Mario Siabra Coelho. Thanks for coming on the show. I understand that you work as a translator in addition to writing original fiction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I became a translator because I wanted to write fiction in English partially. My reasoning was that... um, If I fail as a writer, I'll have a backup job. The only way for me to actually become a specfic writer and make money off it would be to write in English because the Portuguese market is next to non-existent. So Mm. yeah, I was trying to conciliate both things, the translation and writing. And uh, yeah, it ended up being a good idea. Um, Nowadays, I'm a freelance translator full-time, even though I don't work full-time, to be fair, I'm lazy. Right. But yeah, that's how I started. The, the first thing I ever sold was actually a translation. I, I never told Stranger Eyes since that, but uh, it was a translation of a Portuguese story. Oh, neat. So yeah, my Portuguese story, obviously. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Has translation made you a stronger writer? Yeah, I'd say so. Well, there are drawbacks, obviously, but um, yeah. yeah. In general, I'd say it helps. The, I think the main reason it helps is because I can just plagiarize a really strong corpus of, you know, expressions and vocabulary and nobody will know. I can just sound really smart when I make shit up and sometimes I'm literally just using Portuguese expressions. So yeah, that's the main reason, yeah. And obviously it, it helps to um, create that, uh, that strange effect when I'm trying to sound a bit uncanny. That's how I sound normally, okay. I guess. So. For certain types of fiction, especially weird fiction, it does help to be, you know, a second language writer slash someone who sometimes writes in both languages at the same time, and I translate myself into both at the end. So, yeah. I am not at all a professional translator, but I've done translation projects just as part of, of my studies, just as part of uh, school projects and stuff back in college, and I found that it really does help you become a better writer just purely as a writing exercise. Like, you get different metaphors, different similes, different ways of describing things that you just wouldn't use in your native language. And it's really exciting and strange and eye-opening. Like, I don't know, say if you're... I I studied a bit of Greek. There's this phrase used in Homer over and over again, the wine-dark sea. And it's, mm-hmm. like, not a thing that an English speaker would ever think to yeah. say, to compare the color of the ocean to the color of wine. Oh, yeah. But it's this really beautiful phrase that's so evocative, and, and foreign, just any foreign language is full of these little things that are just standard and normal in that yeah. language, but in your your own language, in the target language, it you'd never do that, and it's so exciting to come across yeah. it. And for me, I, I think in my perspective, in a way, all writing is a form of translation 
in in a way. Yeah, yeah, translating images obviously into words. Right. So yeah. There's this wordless story in your head and you have to yeah. put it into words. Yeah. On a page. And then your reader is trying to translate your words into their own wordless mm -hmm. story in their head. It's kind of like the telepathy in a way, but yeah. Yeah, it's a very clumsy kind of telepathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that all writers should attempt translation, even if you're not very good in the language you're translating from, even if you just got to sit there with a dictionary and slowly, painfully work it out. I think it's a really really valuable exercise and I think it can make you into a stronger and much more interesting writer. Yeah, for sure. I feel like people are sometimes a little bit afraid of doing that because this might be just me, but um, they they seem to be afraid of penetrating another culture, so to speak, like uh, maybe they, right. they don't want to sound insensitive or something, but uh, I'd be more than flattered if somebody tried to translate Portuguese into English, you know, a, a native English speaker, if they research Portuguese and try to incorporate whatever they like into their English writing. So I think it's flattering and I think most people, obviously this is a generalization, but uh, I think most second language speakers would feel the same because we're start for representation and you know, it's flattering when somebody likes our language especially. Yeah, and I mean, you're showing, hey, I love this thing so much, I want to share it. And so, yeah, exactly. like, put the time in to really try and make this work. Like, that's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Yeah, learning another language that, is that terrible. Very much a labor of love. Yeah. So, one of the issues that I find when I'm trying to translate is just how much do you stick to the original versus how much do you change Sorry, that's the that's the crux of it, for for the most yeah, part. Yeah, that's I mean the whole thing of it. Yeah, like, it is. How much do you change if you stick to the original too much? Then there's shit that the audience is just not gonna understand, and they might not yeah. be able to really appreciate it. But if you change it too much, then it's like you're watering it down, and maybe you're kind of babying your readers a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Obviously, I got that issue both in uh, my my actual job. And, uh, and fiction. When I'm translating myself, that's not a that's not a question. I just do whatever I want since I have the explicit authorization of the author being myself. Right. But um, it depends whether I'm doing a technical translation or whether I'm translating fiction. When I can, when I'm translating fiction, sometimes I actually just send an email to the author being like, hey, what do you mean with this? Or do you mind if I, you know, if I translate this loosely so it sounds better in Portuguese? Um, that's happened to me a couple times, even though for the most part, authors don't really answer their emails. But um, right, and when it's technical stuff, I try to stick as close to the original as I can because I'm afraid of you know making a mistake and killing somebody by mistranslating uh, some instruction, how to deal with a very heavy machine, something like that. So it really right. depends. But I think the important thing is um, before you even start translating, you try to you try to understand what the um, what a goal of the text is. So for instance, if I'm translating poetry, I believe for the most part the the goal is beauty, I guess. The, you know, it's the aesthetics of it. So I think yeah. the, the poet, the, the original author, will want me to make it as pretty as I can, so to speak. I don't think it makes much sense to translate it literally and then completely erase all the lyricism. Mm. So it, yeah, it's, it's hard though, because it really depends on the author. It kind of reminds me of, do you know um, the book Hex by Thomas Huvold? I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's Dutch, I think. 
It's, um, I don't think I know that book. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a, it's a horror book. Mm. The it's a very famous book in um, in the Netherlands, and it was translated into English. And surprisingly, it actually sold well because usually translations mm. don't sell very well. But uh, the thing he did is that he actually completely changed the text to transposed it into America. The original story is set in the Netherlands, and uh, huh. he changed all the names, all the locations. So now in uh, in English, it's set in New York. So huh. in that sense, what he did is um, he tried to naturalize the translation, try to make it sound as natural as possible to the reader or to the English language reader. I'm not a right. big fan of doing that for the most part because I think it's completely yeah. fine if a translation and the original work have different effects on the reader. I don't think it's uh, an issue. Like, uh, for instance, sometimes I write stuff set in Portugal. I write it in English, but uh, I write a story that's set in Lisbon or something like that. And I, I'm aware that it's going to sound somewhat exotic for uh, an English uh, na native. And it's yeah. going to sound completely mundane to a Portuguese uh, reader. And I'm fine with that because yeah. I don't think we should try and uh, make the text have the same effect in readers all over. Because that's not going to happen anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are readers who are kind of turned off by, oh, it's so strange, it's foreign. But then again, at least for me, part of the joy mm -hmm. is the strangeness of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I feel that strangeness in English, for instance, obviously, very often. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of American culture is just fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And nonsensical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Which you don't realize when you're steeped in it. Yeah, like uh, for instance, uh, how southerners talk, like you know, like in Texas and stuff. I'm guessing it sounds completely. I don't even know, but uh, I'm guessing you guys yeah. have completely different stereotypes than I do, where the the effect is completely different. Because to me, it just sounds fascinating, like uh, when you say the y'all and etc. It's, it's cool yeah. to me. Obviously, you. I think a lot of people in America are going to find that that's a bit lowbrow or something that... Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of northerners really look down on it. Yeah, I don't by nature because to me it just sounds different. Obviously, I also share right. some of the stereotypes uh, unconsciously, I'm guessing. It's going to affect me too, but um, yeah, it's completely different. Obviously, that happens in translation too. If I did that, because the south of Portugal is a little bit the same. I think most countries, apparently the south is looked down by by other regions. Yeah. And it's a kind of kind of the same in Portugal. The, the stereotypes are benign in this case, because the um, southerners are just funny to us. Yeah. <laughs> also, they're the, they're, um, and it's, it works inverted over here, because southerners are the communists actual communists in this country. Well, not actual oh, wow. communists, but they vote for the Communist Party. So yeah, it's, it's cool how it works completely the opposite way in America. But um, but yeah, so uh, if I was writing a story about Portuguese Southerners, obviously I w it'd be completely impossible to emulate what I'm trying to do in English. Like, there's no right. frame of reference. I It's totally impossible. So if I want the reader to appreciate it, the, the English language reader, I just have to go about it a completely different way. I could either transpose it into American culture, and I, I don't like doing that for the most part, or I just have to make it, um, you know, fun in some other way. It has to work without the, the references, I guess. Yeah, and, and that brings us to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is just coping with the untranslatable. Like, yeah. sometimes if you're working, you're trying to translate something, there's shit that just does 
not translate yeah. to the to the next language. So either you have to find some sort of local equivalent, like with, like with accent. I mean, mm-hmm. an American is not going to know the difference between like a northern and a southern Portuguese accent. Yeah, of course. Have no idea that's northern southern Portuguese culture. So like, how do you translate that? Do you just stick to it or do you like sort of use american style regional accents that are roughly culturally equivalent even though there's not really yeah. a cultural equivalence well with accents it's difficult i usually just ignore it to be fair like um my yeah. my ma project was translating um I'm not sure if you know this book it's called super sad true love story by gary steingart i translated part of that oh, book yeah. and uh i translated uh rent by chuck palaniuk or i don't know how to pronounce oh, wow. his name but yeah, I translated part of that, and the uh, rent. Um, think I don't know which state it's set in. But New yeah, York state, right? New yeah. York City. Yeah, I think they. You know, they, they just all speak like y'all, and you know, it's. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I couldn't translate that into Portuguese. We we don't really have an equivalent, I guess. So I just mm. flat out ignored it. To be fair, because there's nothing I can do. I just um, I think we can compensate in other ways. It's just something that people sometimes mm. forget during. The translation process is that you can improve upon the original sometimes. There are things that don't exist in English and don't exist in Portuguese, and sometimes we see an opportunity to use that. Like, for instance, um, uh, English doesn't use suffixation as uh, we do in Portuguese. Like, for instance, the, the ending right. of a word in Portuguese can completely change the, um, the connotation. For instance, if you want to call someone... Let me think of an example. Let's say little girl, for instance. In, in English, you're going to say little girl. You know, the, the word is always girl. Maybe right. you can sometimes say girly or something. No, no that's, that's the adjective. Um, yeah, you're going to always use girl. Then you might use uh, an adjective to characterize girl. In Portuguese, what you can do is that you can mm-hmm. change the, the ending of the, world, uh, of the word. So, for instance, mm-hmm. the word for girl in Portuguese is uh, either rapariga or menina. And let's go with rapariga mm-hmm. because it's easier in this case. You can say, instead of rapariga, you can say raparigita. So ita is a, a suffix. And uh, it would, in this case, it would mean little girl, for instance. So you don't have to use an adjective. You can just say raparigita. Or you can do the opposite. You can say raparigona. So ona, in this case, would be an augmentative. So you wouldn't have to say big girl. You can just change the ending of the word and this is this works beautifully for fiction because uh, you can throw 10 mm. of these in a row and obviously in English if you're doing little girl big girl this girl la, 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 it's gonna end up sounding awkward you're just throwing an adjective for every word but in Portuguese you can do this and it sounds completely natural and um, there are opportunities mm. to do this when we're translating uh, I do this a lot when uh, translating English yeah. into Portuguese Sometimes I, for instance, I want to, uh, I notice that the character is trying, is being condescending. Um, you can use the diminutive, the diminutive suffixes for, um, to make it sound condescending. So sometimes you can add into the translation and you can improve upon the, upon the original. And I think that makes up for the things that you do end up losing in translation. So I think it's a uh, certain parts mm. of the text are going to be stronger than the original. Other parts are going to be weaker. But I think translators are just often they're very afraid of playing with the original text, so they avoid doing this. I do yeah. it, and uh, I think it works. Um, and I think for the most part, writers don't really care that much about uh, translators being faithful. I think they just want their books to be read and to, you know to be entertaining to the, um, the public and to sound well. 
right, obviously right. maybe not all writers think like this yeah. but yeah yeah i'm sure some writers are like no, <laughs> yeah exactly every word literally <laughs> just like okay okay calm down yeah that's happened to me a couple of times actually but yeah oh i bet yeah and in some instances like if you're translating this ancient text that's considered really like important it can be so yeah. intimidating like if you're translating homer it's like i can't mess with homer it's homer it's so important but like i tried doing some translation with Homer, and I just felt like, who the fuck am I to, like, try to improve yeah. on Homer? You know, I'm just some idiot. But, like, when I was working with Aristophanes, Aristophanes' plays are these really silly, horny comedies with a lot of fart <laughs> jokes. I just felt so much more comfortable playing with it and messing with it, because, like, it's yeah. fart jokes. It's fine. Who cares? And it was... I felt like I had a lot more breathing room to just like change things and, and mess with things and, and the translation yeah. was so much Yeah, better. you can see that a lot with um, translations of um, Roman texts. For instance, I, I, I read a couple um, mm. Stoicists, like uh, Marcus Aurelius and uh, Seneca, etc. And the translations, there's like 10 translations for each text, uh, English translations in this case, because I, I like reading right. it in English better for some reason. And... Um, they sound completely different. Like the the latest translation of Marcus of Aurelius just did a really good job, and uh, the I think it just got most sentences in half. To be fair, and uh, and but it works really well because uh, I don't think Seneca or Marcus Aurelius wanted their text to sound convoluted and complicated because they were speaking to the common man very often. Right. And uh, other translations just stick, stick so close to the Latin, and they end up sounding awkward and uh, completely unnatural. And I think we're just we should just try and emulate what the writers want. But the the writers want a certain tone for their text. So if mm-hmm. if we have to change it in our target language, you might end up actually being more faithful to yeah. the original vision of the author if you stray from the translation from the original text. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's talk about something that isn't exactly linguistic but more cultural allusions. A lot of times, an original work references something in an yeah. event or a person or a, another cultural work or a food that the audience isn't going to get an example i'm going to use just because it's uh, mm-hmm. very current is that movie parasite there's this really important scene where the mom the rich lady asks her cook to make something uh, a particular noodle dish and the translation for English they gave was ramdon mm-hmm. and sirloin, although the original was something like je- something called japaguri mm-hmm. with hanwu beef. And it's like the foods in this are strongly associated with certain social mm-hmm. classes in a way that Americans aren't going to pick up on. And also it was kind of weird, like they changed the name from japaguri to ramdon, even yeah, though like, ramdon isn't a thing in English either. Like I like just call it japaguri. I don't I don't know what ramdon is either. I don't whatever. Yeah, I mean, so either. it's like the scene that's really important and your American audience isn't just isn't going to know w- exactly what it means. Like, oh, that's the expensive beef. Oh, that's yeah. like the cheap. I mean, thing. I guess the American, it's like, do you do the equivalent, which I guess the American equivalent would be like Kraft macaroni and cheese with one of those like $10,000 black truffles. Yeah. Like, I guess that's what the, the equivalent would be. But then it's like, but the, you're not going to yeah. eat that in Korea. Yeah, in that specific case, I think the, I think both approaches are fine. I think uh, you could just, you know, translate it exactly as it is and um, hope for the audience to either know, they won't obviously, but... Uh, either research it on their own fine yeah. maybe they will lose the reference which is not that problematic considering it's not that important to the plot but yeah it's a, it's a rich detail that gets lost in translation 
they can either do that or uh, they should just go all in whatever approach they choose so in this case i'm not a fan of putting ramdon in there because obviously we don't know what that is but we do know what sirloin is so you should just you know stick to one maybe change ramdon to i don't know just noodles or uh, something something else whatever it is so yeah whatever approach you choose you ju you should just stick to it don't yeah don't mix it up that's not gonna it's not gonna work that way right yeah i felt like that was almost an example of like trying to do it halfway and it just didn't work on either side yeah exactly and halfway never works yeah you really can't it's just like well they don't know what japaguri is so we're gonna say rondon yeah. like they don't know what that is either yeah it's why yeah it's <laughs> i loved the movie i thought i for from what i could tell i mean the translation worked great for me but yeah. that I don't actually just remember like... how they did it in Portuguese because uh, I watched it with subtitles. Actually, I, I still watch every movie right. with subtitles, even though by now I obviously can understand English well enough that I don't need subtitles. But I still watch every movie right. with uh, English subtitles. I watched this in... Yeah, I watched it in the movies, actually. Uh, I went to the cinema to watch uh, Parasite and uh, with Portuguese subtitles, and I don't really remember how they did that. Damn, actually, right. I don't think I was paying attention. Uh, yeah, me. now I'm curious. I got. I was hungry, I gotta so I was like paying a lot of attention to the noodles. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what are those noodles? Those look good. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Movies just make me hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when there's food in a movie, I get very interested. Oh yeah, that even is in books. Like... <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I was reading uh, Lies of Lucky Lamora by Scott Lynch, and uh, he talks about he, he describes food a lot. And obviously, uh, I don't think those dishes make any sense. To be fair. Like, the ingredients make no sense. It's like um, uh, cow's tongue with plums and stuff like that. And, like, what? Nobody would eat that. Yeah, ah. you know, something like that. But uh, I just get very hungry every time I'm reading that book, even though, you know, the food is disgusting. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like, food is one of those things where it's basic, but it's also extremely culturally specific. Yeah. And every food has this very like a lot of complex sort of cultural and historical yeah, for sure. stuff tied to it and unfortunately i think that is something that doesn't translate super well with the audience That's true. and when they yeah and people pick pick on that up uh pick that up very easily for instance um you know saramago the portuguese writer um he wrote blindness he's the only portuguese author who ever won the nobel prize i think mm -hmm. he won it for probably for blindness actually the, in Portuguese, the, the book is called Essay on Blindness. The, in, in English, it translated into just blindness, which I think it's a beautiful title, to be fair. And uh, it's about um, how there's this plague, and it just makes people go blind. And they call it white blindness, I think, because instead of seeing black, you see white. And uh, everyone in the world, except for one woman, or at least everyone in the anonymous country, the, um, the book is set in, uh, goes blind except for one woman. So she has to pretend that she's blind. Because, you know, the villains are also mm -hmm. blind now. No, it's complicated. Anyway, the book, um, the characters don't have names. They're called, for instance, the girl with X or the guy who whatever. They don't have names. The, the city doesn't have a name. Like, you, you can translate it into any language and it works. Because it's completely devoid of cultural references. Except for one point in the story mm -hmm. where they uh, raid a supermarket. And they say that they're eating chorizo. Now I'm, I'm guessing chorizo isn't very common in America. Like it's not a thing you eat very, very often. I guess. Not often. It's kind of like 
it's very, I guess it's sort of hipsterish food right yeah. now. It's like, ooh, chorizo. Is regular sausage not yeah. fancy enough for you, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Fancy Pants Hipster? <laughs> yeah. yeah, in Portugal, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> like, chorizo is a rural food. Like, a, it's what a, you know, people in, a, yeah, like poor yeah. people eat, I guess. Well, not everybody eats it, but, you know, it's it's not hipsterish at all. It's like, a, it's what our, our grandparents eat. And, um, right. and it's a very Portuguese food, I guess. So that's the one time in the book where people can pick up, oh, uh, where the Portuguese reader will be like, oh, chorizo. Okay, so this is probably happening in Portugal. But yeah, that's the only time. So I think I think it's interesting that uh, the common reader will pick up on that, like uh, on food. You know, since we eat food all the time, I guess, you know, everyone will pick up on that. Yeah. So yeah, food references are very interesting and hard to do in translation. I usually just leave them untouched and that's it. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like hearing about the the exotic food or whatever. Yeah. For me, it's just like no, I, I you know I'm I'm an adult. Not everything has to be a hamburger. Yeah. I'll get over it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially since like food is such a, an important part of a culture, and yeah. I feel like it kind of robs us if you're if you're making it this bland thing. It's like, I mean, well, like Italians, you know, if you want to like water down any of the food references in, in an Italian story, it's just like, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll come for you, man. Yeah. They they will not tolerate that shit. <laughs> That's the cool part about writing spec fic, too. I can just, you know, make food up. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's what's fun, definitely. Um, another issue of translation, humor. Ah, yeah, that's the toughest one. Humor is, broad humor, you know, sex jokes, fart jokes are, are usually easy to translate, but like subtle humor, a lot of humor is very cultural, like yeah. Oscar Wilde's comedies are very much based on sort of English, especially Victorian English social attitudes, and they just fall apart yeah. in a different culture. Just the idea of like, why don't you just tell her your name's not really Ernest? Like, no, I can't. <laughs> Because I'm English, we don't communicate. Yeah. What are you talking yeah, about? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, like just tell her. Like no. That specific case does work well in Portuguese, fortunately, because we got mm. uh, forms of address. Like for instance, you say "you" for everything in um, in English. It's just you know, even if it's right. Obama, I don't want to say Trump, but yeah, if it's Obama, you call him "you." You might call uh. him "you," Mr. President, obviously, but. Uh, the whole Mr. slash Sir slash uh, Mrs. slash whatever is um, is in our verbs in Portuguese. So, right. yeah, it's, it's actually kind of disturbing because in Portugal, you know you're getting older when people on the street start using different uh, verb conjugations to speak oh. to you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's like people, it's the equivalent of people starting, call, starting calling you Sir, for instance, or uh, Ma'am, or, yeah. Ma'am, oh, yeah, no. so, yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, it's I got it really young, too, and I'm like, Shit. Yeah, exactly. I, that happens Shit. to me a lot, especially at the good. gym. Random people <laughs> just be like, Sir, can you hand me that? I'm like, oh, why, why am I Sir? I'm 29, but yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, humor is uh, <laughs> it's very hard to translate. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's the toughest, mm. possibly. Yeah, the biggest difference Sometimes is probably Sometimes there's stuff human. structurally in the language. Puns, especially. Right. Puns are the worst. Sometimes... Oh, God. Puns are impossible. Yeah, sometimes they're literally impossible. You can either make a different pun, fine. Sometimes that works. But, yeah, most times you, you can either put a, a note, like a, a footnote, which you're... Yeah. In my translation classes, you're encouraged to never, ever do unless you really don't have a choice. Right. I think the last... It's kind of a sign of failure, I feel. Yeah, just like, yeah Especially exactly. with a joke, like, asterisk, look at the footnote. Here's why this would be funny. Yeah, yeah If you exactly. understood it. Like, yeah. 
I think one of the last, well, I don't read many translated books nowadays because uh, I can't switch off my translated brain when I'm reading, so it ends up ruining the book for me because I'm like, ah, I, I do this differently. What a shit translator. <laughs> right. Yeah, but uh, I remember uh, one of the Harry Potter books. There's this part where Tom Marvolo Riddle, the the name of you know Voldemort, suddenly the letters right. switch around and it says, "I am Lord Voldemort," and uh, obviously it didn't work that way in Portuguese because uh, you know the letters are not the same at all. And I noticed that, for instance, what the Brazilian translator did is change the name Tom Marvolo Riddle into some Brazilian-sounding name, which to me makes some sense since mm. the character is British, but fine. And in uh, European Portuguese, the translator just gave up, and he was like, I am Lord Voldemort in Portuguese. Then in, she added a footnote saying, by the way, in English, the letters would reconstitute to say this, blah, blah. But, uh, so yeah, puns and etc. are the toughest part for sure. I actually unconsciously yeah. avoid them. Actually, no, I'm not sure if I avoid them or if I actually do the opposite. But um, when I'm writing in English... And when I'm writing Portuguese, I always have a mind for translation. I'm always thinking, you know, maybe one day I'll be incredibly famous and then I'll have to translate this <laughs> into Portuguese or have to translate this into English. So every time I write a pun, I'm like, yeah, this is going to come back and bite me when I have to translate it. <laughs> so sometimes I avoid it and sometimes out of spite, I just use way too many puns. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just I remember working on uh, Aristophanes' Lysistrata and most of the puns are like sex jokes and those are actually pretty easy to translate yeah. because there are so many different words for penis yeah that like you can find one that fits and across languages they're they're pretty similar the the various like jokes and puns that are about that for the most part yeah. but i remember this one that was like impossible to translate and it was this phrase where basically the story is about the women going on a sex strike to try mm -hmm. to force the men to end the war and women are saying well what if we get lonely and like the pun in the original translates literally to flay the flayed dog <laughs> because i guess like sex toys at the time were made with dog leather wow but like there's no fucking way <laughs> that's not a that's not a phrase in english there's nothing i think the translation the choice i went with was take matters into your own hands yeah because it kind of oh, gets yeah. across the idea yeah, yeah. like <laughs> i mean you're gonna yeah. miss a huge thing about it but it just gets across the general yeah. idea, and it's like, this is a phrase yeah, that works good. in English, but that's I remember good. scratching my head and going, what How? What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of little puns like that. There's a pun that's like making fun of the name of this one region of Greece. There's a, Anagiros, um, and there's also a really stinky plant. Yeah. From cult named after it, so like the women from Anagiros are arriving, and someone says, "Oh, all of Anagiros has moved," which at the time was a joke that meant like I smell something stinky. Yeah. Again, fucking untranslatable. Like no one, most people do a literal translation. Yeah. But like I, I tried to do like a, a joke translation, which was I thought I smelled something, but then the character comes across as like unreasonably mean. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, what a bitch. What do you have against Anagirus? It's like, no, it's there's a pun in the original, but like no one's going to pick up yeah. on it. Or, or you could translate it, the name of the region to like Malodoros. Like, oh, Malodoros, like Malodorus, like it's stinky. Like, I, <laughs> there's no perfect yeah. choice yeah, that's going to 100% fit a very specific regional pun. 
Yeah, yeah, for phones, <laughs> it's, uh, it's next to impossible. It's funny you mention swearing, There's, because swearing is, uh, uh, I think it's what I like, uh, it's my favorite part of translating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, every language has a limitless potential for swearing, obviously. Like, um, and sometimes... It, yeah, and there's a lot of, like, specific like, yeah. cultural swears, too, which is really cool. One detail I love is that every time I have to translate some uh, in English, uh, I don't give a shit. Like, that, that's the expression. In Portuguese, it, it's literally the opposite expression. When you say it in, you don't give a shit, you say you give a shit. So, uh, for instance, uh, the word would be... The phrase would be which means, uh, well, it depends on how literal you want to be, but it either means I'm shitting myself for you, which sounds horrible in English, yeah. Yeah, or just a. Wow! Yeah, or, just, I'm, or, it, or it can mean I'm giving a shit. But you know, it means I'm not giving a shit. So it's. Um, huh. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious to me. That, that expression. Uh, yeah, swearing in general <laughs> yeah. is really fun to translate. Like, for instance, the word that we have for cock, uh, well, one of the many, many, many words we got one for cock. One of the cock. many. <laughs> yeah, like it's called caralho. And um, caralho is um, those wooden poles, those really tall wooden poles on ships. Uh, you know, like, think, you know, ships during the Age of Discovery and etc. Like the, there'd be those right. sailors. Like the mast or Yeah, the mast. Called? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, exactly, the mast. And um, the mast with, a, like, the basket on top or something. Then there's a dude over there and he yells, Oh, right. I can see land or land something, land a hoe, whatever it is in English. Land ho in the crow's nest, yeah. I think it's Yeah, called. the crow's nest, exactly. So, caralho used to mean crow's nest. Mm. And uh, we have this expression, which is uh, vai pro caralho, <laughs> which literally translates to go to the crow's nest. And this means go fuck yourself. And it's an expression that... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, everybody everybody still uses this. It's like one of the most common expressions. And uh, if you, yeah, and apparently, because this is the myth, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but the myth is that when sailors were punished, they were sent up to the crow's nest because nobody wanted to be there, obviously. So you know, go to the crow's nest means go fuck yourself because nobody wants to yeah be up there. So Portuguese in general has a lot of nautical expressions. Huh. Yeah, for for obvious yeah. reasons. Yeah. So, but it's hilarious. Uh, Caralho can also means fuck, as in fuck, as in just general swearing like fuck which is funny because right. when you're thinking people are just yelling cock so yeah <laughs> yeah and sometimes even like non-swear things or just jokes sometimes there are just these like standard jokes yeah where just referencing them is itself kind of a weird bit of meta humor mm -hmm. and like again just a totally untranslatable thing like there's that joke template a lot of people on on Twitter, love it, which is, but doctor, I am Pagliacci the clown, <laughs> which is like, how would you do this in another language? Like, yeah, I don't know. You either have to find some kind of equivalent template, or I've seen it just not translated at all and given a, re a literal translation, and it's so unintelligible that it kind of becomes a weird, humorous anti-humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I've seen. I know this is a weird thing to cite, but there was this very silly anime called Cromartie High and like it was this mm -hmm. joke comedy thing and a lot of the jokes were based on these traditional like well traditional these sort of standard Japanese joke templates mm -hmm. and they would just give it a literal translation and it made no fucking sense in English and <laughs> I just found it absolutely delightful watching it um, because it was just the strangest most absolute nonsense in that it became for me, enjoyable simply because I had no idea what the fuck was going on, and <laughs> that for me was kind of funny and absurd. Yeah, uh, that uh, you know that meme, all your bays are belong to us. 
Right. Yeah, that one that was, yeah, that was a <laughs> literal translation, probably an automatic translator or something. There's, it's funny you mentioned anime. You know this anime called Ghost Stories? I think so. It's a, it's a really, really bad anime. Like, it's terrible. <laughs> and what, what happened was this. They, since the, the anime didn't, you know, it, it wasn't successful, oh, damn, I hate pronouncing this word, successful at all in, uh, mm-hmm. in Japan. They sold rights for a nickel or something to some American studio, and uh, they just completely disregarded the script. Like, they didn't even translate it. So they just wrote a new script, <laughs> and it's just off the walls hilarious because just they the writers just made up whatever they wanted. So it used to be this really serious show about uh, ghosts and, uh, yeah, and horror and etc. And they just turned it into a South Park-like comedy. So, yeah, the... <laughs> It's hilarious. Like, everybody should watch that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. I, f- I feel like, too, there's a lot of room for goofing off just because it's like, well, this anime sucked. No one liked it. Like, you yeah, can exactly. play with this. No one's going to be mad. The show's five fans yeah, um, are not going to mess with us. Do you know Dragon Ball? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Dragon Ball is the probably the most popular um, cartoon ever in Portugal. Like, ever. It's... It's insane. Like every if you if you start singing the the intro from uh, any of the series, people on the street will start singing it. Like whatever you are, it's insane. And um, it is it was very popular because we didn't have the Japanese translation. We didn't have a, a Japanese translator at all. Apparently back then in the nineties, so we were using the French translation of the Japanese version. <laughs> and it's that was completely unintelligible. Uh, nobody could understand what was there. We couldn't, yeah, we couldn't decipher the <laughs> translation at all. So, the writers did the, the actors actually. The both the writers and the actors did um, just did whatever they wanted. So the the Portuguese version of Dragon Ball is full of Portuguese references. Sometimes um, the characters aren't even saying anything, and the actors just added this. Um, yeah, like, like random characters just yelling stuff, like making stupid jokes, making Portuguese cultural references, like shows that are on TV back then, etc. And I think that's uh, why why the show is so popular, because it was speaking directly to the Portuguese public. So we could see that it, it wasn't a translation even, it was just Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential in that approach, because... Um, People yeah. from English-speaking countries aren't going to feel this. Uh, I think th- this is actually might be one of the biggest cultural divides, is that uh, obviously you got a lot of representation everywhere, books, movies, series. Right. In a, in a lot of minor cultures, so to speak, you know, over, overlooked cultures, um, and uh, mm. Portuguese is one of those, in a way, European Portuguese. If somebody mentioned, even mentions the word Portugal in a movie, everyone in Portugal will perk up. Like, uh, for instance, um, there's this author called uh, Ricardo Pinto. He's a British author. Uh, author. He, he just has a Portuguese name because I think his parents are Portuguese, but he doesn't even speak Portuguese. But uh, he was translated into Portuguese only because the, um, the marketing behind it was, oh, look at this Portuguese guy. He's translated into English. This was obviously false. It was just, you know, misleading marketing. But he was translated into <laughs> Portuguese only because his name is Portuguese. And uh, the same goes for this thriller author called Daniel Sil- Daniel Silva. He's not Portuguese either. I think this one's a bit more famous, Daniel Silva. But um, he's not Portuguese either. But uh, his books are everywhere in Portugal because his name is Portuguese. So sometimes when the, wow. um, there's a lot of potential for simply representing the culture, your uh, yeah, like Portuguese culture in this sense, uh, in this context. 
there's a lot of potential just to represent overlooked cultures. And I, I'm pretty sure that countries like, just, just mentioning Europe, but for instance, countries like Croatia, Macedonia, right. Bulgaria, all those countries that don't have a lot of international representation feel the same. Yeah, yeah, that is a thing that Americans, most Americans probably, we don't have that, like God, American cultures. All big everywhere so it's not like oh finally yeah, exactly. someone someone <laughs> mentioned the united states i feel yeah. <laughs> so seen yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> going back for a moment to the notion of puns um yeah. as frustrating as translating a pun is something that i find so valuable in it just as an exercise is even when you're looking at a silly little joke a very silly little joke when you're really trying to work on a pun, you start realizing, okay, two words are not going to have the exact same meaning. Yeah. Even if they're supposedly synonyms, there's not 100% the exact same meaning because there's going to be a different level of how formal it is. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a different level of like, is it a slang word? There's going to be different connotations they're used in different contexts and simply the sound is going to be different the people who use it are going to be slightly different audiences the cultural references behind them are going to be different and just the sound of it is also going to be different too and that's also an issue in, with puns because yeah. you're doing wordplay you're doing sound alike words or even fitting the meter yeah and, and it, it makes you stop taking words for granted because one simple little word can like have you scratching your head just to fill in the pun. Like I remember when working on Aristophanes, trying to find the right synonym for dildo and realizing that it was not possible. Because yeah. it was like the word that fit needed to fit the meter of the line. Yeah. And like the, the, the stress was on the wrong syllable. Yeah, yeah, in poetry and I was just like, guys, I need a synonym yeah. for dildo. And they're like, vibrator? I'm like, it's ancient Greece. They didn't have vibrators. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And and you start real to appreciate a single silly little word like dildo. Yeah. Of like how complex it is, which is a big part of why I think writers really need to, especially fucking Americans, get on it, Americans. Other languages exist. Like it really forces you to contend with every little word choice yeah. in these head-scratchingly frustrating ways that you would never think about before. And just that exercise, I think, makes you... A much more careful reader when you're picking a word yeah. for a sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, puns are the worst to translate for sure. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was so tricky too because like there's a million synonyms for penis, but not very many for dildo. Yeah, yeah, I'm guessing. Uh, not I, many. I'm, I'm thinking. I don't think. You, yeah, I don't think even we we don't even have a word in Portuguese for dildo. I think we. Oh, actually, kinda. I think we had a, a medieval word that translates like wooden cock or something like that. Uh, for, right. Yeah, but uh, we just use dildo anyway, like the English word. <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Right. And even just like a silly word like that, you just think about it so much, and it's just like, oh god, I need to find the right word yeah. for dildo, but it won't work. It won't fit. Ha ha pun. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a valuable exercise putting yourself through that. Just, just. Because when you're writing original fiction now, you're going to work, look at every word and go, is this really the right word? And it makes you slow down a lot, but that's a good thing. Yeah. That is a very good thing. And seeing how many levels yeah. there are to a word. It's, um, but, it's um, interesting how, um, you know, since I 
uh, speak English as a second language, and not that well, but uh, since I speak English as a second language, um, English is kind of performative to me. Like, um, hmm. it doesn't sound 100% natural yet, and I don't think it ever will, because I learn English watching movies, playing video games, sometimes reading books, etc. Right. So, English to me is a language of entertainment. Uh, it's, it's theatrical by nature. It's, uh, yeah, it's performative. So, not, it's very difficult for, uh, for me for something to sound unnatural in English. Like, you can write whatever you want, and uh, to me, it'll just be like, okay, the, there's a cool combination of words which is probably yeah. why my writing can sound a bit uncanny too like uh, I'm aware of it actually like uh, when I write in different styles mm. I like to play around a lot with English and I don't know whether Portuguese yeah. interesting enough so um, it's because yeah because to me it, it, it it's never going to be my native language obviously I like writing in English right. much more than I do in Portuguese now English has a lot of advantages that work for me like for instance it's much, much easier to do alliteration in English and um, there's a, you know, in Portuguese, all the words end in five vowels, or maybe an R if it's an infinitive uh, verb. So English is very, very flexible and flows really well for me. Obviously, there are things that I miss in Portuguese too. But, um, right. oh, my cat is here on my lap. One second. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. We're a pro cat podcast. Yeah, it actually took him, took him long enough to interrupt the podcast. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, like, for instance, violence. Like, when I'm reading violent scenes in English, I'm the effect isn't the same for me because I'm just focusing on how it sounds and, the, and like, the phonemes or, uh, like, the sonic effect. Like, I know that crack, obviously, is a very, very violent word. Like, crack is exactly the, the sound a bone would make, breaking, etc. Right. But uh, it doesn't sound uh, harsh to me in, uh, in English. It doesn't sound really violent like it would in portuguese like portuguese to me is a very violent language the, the sounds are just very there's a lot of and uh, harsh sounds so yeah that, that's that's interesting to me about um speaking it as a single language it's uh, and the same is going to happen uh, with translations um it's always going to be an element of performance i think yeah yeah definitely which brings I'm... me to another point sorry that's what i was trying to get with this rambling is that um <laughs> A lot of people will tell you, like, if when you're bilingual, they will say, oh, I, I'd just rather read the book in the original language, la la la. People say this a lot, especially here in Portugal, because uh, most people speak at least mm. a modicum of English, so they kind of can read books in English. And for instance, when it comes right. to spec fic, we don't have a lot of translated spec fic, so we feel like, I don't know, whoever it is, like uh, Brandon Sanderson. No, actually, Brandon Sanderson does have a lot of translated books, but, uh, you know, any other author... Ian Banks, for instance, if you like Ian Banks, you'll have to read him in English. Period. And uh, people say like, um, yeah, I just like to read the original books better because you always lose something in translation, etc. That's true, but mm. reading in your native language is a uh, it's irreplaceable because the yeah. it's the language your reality is set in. Like um, the your second language is always gonna be the language of entertainment so to speak like you're always focused on the language itself it doesn't things don't sound as real as they will in your native language unless you're natively bilingual mm. obviously so yeah so i think there's a lot of value in reading translations even if you do speak the the other language because yeah obviously this doesn't matter that much to most people who speak english as a native language because i might be mistaken but i think most english speakers are monolingual 
So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, they have to read translations anyway. But for people who can't, well, yeah, have the option of either reading the original book or reading a translation. I think there's a lot of value in just reading the translation, even if some things are lost in translation, which they are. But what you can gain by reading your native language is it's much, much better. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a much richer experience. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, it feels more like home. Yeah, exactly. I guess. Yeah. And you're not like translating in your head. It's just there. Yeah. Right. We've talked a lot about word choice, but there's an issue when you're translating of not words, but sort of the grammar of the language. You've you've already mentioned endings. Yeah. yeah. These suffixes and and Portuguese. Um, and there's a lot of little things like that between languages where it's not just the word choice, but also the structure, the structure of the language, the structure of the words, the structure of the sentence, and sometimes. Here we also run into these untranslatable issues. Especially in poetry, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like in Greek, ancient Greek had really versatile sentence structure. You could put words into a lot of different orders and like split clauses up in, in all these ways. And poets, of course, took advantage of that and did that as much as possible because it just shows this real creativity of language. Yeah. And you just can't do that in English at all. So you end up with these kind of more straightforward sentence structures because it's just impossible to do the things in English and unfortunately there's bits where you almost lose meaning. I'm thinking of this one example in Euripides' play uh, Trojan Women. Mm -hmm. There's this passage where Euripides sticks the word fear in a line so that it the, the phrase first seems like it's somebody saying I don't tolerate fear but because mm -hmm. the sentence keeps going, what it ends up meaning is, I don't tolerate, I don't abide people who fear. Yeah. And it's this really sharp turn of phrase because it leads you down, oh, it means this. Oh, wait, it means this other thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But I don't, like, English isn't going to, you can't do that in the same way because you can't, like, put the object sort of in the middle of the sentence and then change it what it is it's like okay we're at the object generally we're near the end yeah you can't keep going for another five lines what are you doing <laughs> yeah. and it's like okay when you come across that like how do you do that and my favorite extreme example of it is this ancient chinese poem called stargage it's by a poetess named su hui and because of the structure of chinese like a character's position can change the meaning and you have a lot of different readings of yeah. each character and she wrote this poem that's, I think, 20, a grid that's like, I think, 26 characters by 26 characters. And you can read it left to right, up and down, diagonal, in a spiral, in like a wow. series of nine panels, yeah. zigzags. And it all has a different meaning each time. And it's all it all means something. It's not gibberish. Yeah. And the way it is, is there are something like thousands of different potential ways to read this poem. Wow. Yeah, you and can do it in Portuguese. There's no way to either, do yeah. this. There's no. It is impossible. It is literally impossible to do this in English. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. In Portuguese, I don't think you'd be able to do that either. Even though we do have a bit of more flexibility where we put our verbs and a subject. Right. But uh, but yeah, you can do that either. Yeah, that I don't even know how to where how I translate that. I think uh, I just give up change job yeah i've seen attempts at english and instead of like being word to word it's like phrase to phrase but even then you're yeah. missing it yeah. even then you're still much more limited because you just you just can't yeah 
<laughs> it is an incredibly complex poem. I think there's this book, I don't remember the original language, it might actually, it might be English, even though I think it was French, where they just, the author just didn't use the letter A, I think. I think it, it just... Right! Yeah, and I know the translations all follow that, but obviously it's different letters, so they would avoid using the most common letter in the alphabet, because I think that's what the original author oh, did. Oh, wow. I think the, I remember one, I think the Spanish translation kind of cheated and they avoided using the second most common uh, letter on the alphabet. Oh. But uh, yeah, I'm always thinking, how the hell would you translate that? Like, uh, especially in Portuguese, right. you just, you love, we love vowels, like words and in vowels all the time, like most words and in vowels. And we have gendered words too, so uh, you can't, yeah. you have to, if you avoid letter A, you literally can't use the feminine version of a lot of words for instance so <laughs> wow. yeah so you'd have to delete the whole gender in the the work so yeah it's, it's interesting yeah oh yeah yeah gender is such another interesting thing in a language just oh, i mean I hate, some yeah. some languages will have like multiple you know more than two some some have none i know and there's this one aristophanes play where there's this really important series of jokes about gendered language which just isn't a thing in english because he's holding up a bird and he's like oh this is a bird it's a whole joke about the way yeah. nouns are gendered in Greek. Yeah. Which yeah, they are, doesn't work they at are all in, in English. Too. It's like, this is bird, and this is birdetta, yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly, like, I don't yeah. Fucking, yeah, you're out of luck, uh, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's how They're it works birds. in Portuguese, too. It's, and it's, uh, it's terrible in translation. Like, for instance, we don't have the... Um, gender neutral pronouns. Like, uh, you know how they use they right. in, uh, in English? We literally don't have that right. option. We just use the plural as plural. So if we use they, we're talking about multiple people. In a couple a couple contexts, I think you can do that. But uh, for the most part, you can't use them. You know, the gender neutral in Portuguese is the same as the masculine. But obviously, since oh. that's also masculine, a lot of people don't like it. So for instance, when they say um, a sentence that would be like, they are going to the shop. In English, it's neutral, mm -hmm. period. Like, they, it's neutral. Whatever you're using it for. Plural, you don't know if they mean multiple men, multiple women, multiple, you know, whatever it is. So, um, in, in in Portuguese, the plural, the neutral, would be eles, which also means they, but the masculine version of they. So, right. uh, that's really complicated. Like, for instance, I... Since I, when I'm writing in English, I'm al I always have a mind for translation. I'm thinking, as I mentioned before, what if I have to translate this in the future? So it's really difficult for me to use uh, the general neutral they. I, I feel kind of limited because I'm thinking, what, what if, when I translate this in Portuguese, how, how the hell am I going to do this? Like, literally can't do this. Like, it's impossible. Right. Unless people accept that, uh, grammatically speaking, the masculine is also neutral, but obviously for... And I understand their point. A lot of people don't like that because it's, you know, it's still masculine. Mm. What people do sometimes is, uh, you know how Latinos uh, use Latin X to mean... Uh, right. You know, some people do stuff like that. But uh, I do have a bit of an issue with that sort of approach because, and this is going to... Yeah, I, I know this isn't very common, but um, software for blind people can't read that sort of thing yet at least. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, since I work for a couple of companies and I have to pay attention to accessibility translations and stuff like that. And um, we in Portugal, what we use, usually do is that the, the eles, the they, would, you'd put a, an at instead of um, the last e. So the at would mean that it can be both an e for male 
or an A for female, you know, just an ad means both. Hmm. But yeah, but a software for, uh, you know, visually impaired people can't read it. So you end up creating another problem. So yeah, gender neutrality yeah, in a search yeah. rate, so it's really, really, really complicated to do that. Gender in general. Yeah, it's complicated. It doesn't translate well. And a lot of the time it's political in one culture in a way that it's not. Yeah, exactly. You know, do you know Joanne Harris, the author? Right. Yeah, uh, so Joanne Harris, this is going to be a spoiler for the listeners out there. So if you don't want spoilers for... Uh, Damn, I actually don't know the name of the book now, so I'm going to spoil a book. I don't even remember the title. <laughs> yeah. But she's got this book where for the most part of the... For most of the story, you... She's using... In English, I'm guessing she's using they or she just... You know, since it's first person, she's not even using any pronouns that you can see if they're male or female. Right. So, and there's this huge plot twist. Cause at the end of the book, you notice that the narrator is actually a woman. Hmm. She makes it seem like it's a a male narrator and then there's something in the story later happens and you're like oh my god so okay so this all makes sense looking back uh, she was a woman um and in portuguese the the translator literally couldn't do that so she just used the male uh form the entire book so the twist was completely impossible to predict because she's literally using oh yeah male conjugation so to me the twist was like what and how like yeah, I was yeah. reading the book. It's just all the verb forms are male or the, the nouns are male, etc. So it makes some sense. So yeah, it's like sometimes right. it's literally impossible to translate. She had to put a footnote. And the, the translator had to put a footnote at the end yeah. being like, I'm sorry, ruining the twist, but literally no <laughs> yeah. way. You know, okay. Otherwise you'd give away the entire twist yeah, exactly. and the novel would just so, be like, it's so yeah, boring. I don't envy her position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or um, I remember hearing about... I don't remember the name of the t- story, but there was a sci-fi story, I believe, written in the 60s, and this was like a, at a big movement toward more gender-neutral language. Language was way more gendered in the 60s, yeah. especially with professional nouns, like aviator, aviatrix, yeah. uh, actor, actress. There was like way more of that stuff, yeah. and, and feminists were trying to move toward a more like gender-neutral noun use so the original writer who was very much a feminist used very gender neutral nouns Mm -hmm. but then a polish translator the thing is in polish apparently it was very much the opposite the standard traditional was a lot more gender neutral and like the feminist movement was trying to deliberately use more feminine nouns and more feminine titles as a way to like make women more visible yeah and like make the status of professional women more like big and open and saying like no women are part of society and women are doing stuff so in order to like keep the spirit of the translation or the spirit of the original work what the translator had to do was effectively do the opposite and instead of taking away gender like making more gender in the language just because it's like yeah that's literally not what they're doing but like very clearly the intent the intent was like sort of the feminist thing to do and this is what the feminist thing to do is in this target language and i find that so interesting <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah, that reminds me um you know since in portuguese the neutral is also male but uh, since a lot of people don't uh, don't like that understandably mm. uh, for instance in, um, in college if there's like 15 people in a classroom and one of them is a guy 
you're going to use the male form to refer to all of them. So you right. say, yeah, like for right. instance, I think you that's say, the case in French too. Yeah, exactly. I remember yeah. learning about that in French class and being very upset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, traditionally, I think it came from Latin and it's supposed to be neutral, but uh, obviously that's not how people see it. And uh, that's, you know, completely normal yeah. that it's not how people see it. And so my, um, in this case, my, my teacher would say something like, my professor would say something like amigos, which means friends, but it's the male form. So the female form would right. be amigas. So it ends with an A instead of with an O. And um, what some of my feminist professors started doing is, uh, if there were more women than men in the class, they'd use the female uh, right. form. And I was like, okay, actually, that's right. actually a good approach, I guess. Like, that works well. I'm not a... Because some of my friends would be offended, like my male friends would be like, what? And she's calling us girls? Because technically, the female would only work if there were only women in the classroom. So they were like, what? I'm not a girl. What is she calling me female friend for? Like, I'm not a girl. So, but I think that's one possible approach, you know, just uh, there's not going to be an easy answer for this kind of stuff uh, ever, I think, unless you completely change Portuguese grammar. Which is not going to happen, I think. Unless you completely change your culture and your culture's attitude toward gender. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is a lot to ask a translator. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and there are there are positive steps. Like, uh, obviously, I don't much care. I don't think it's a big issue in in any case. But because to me, the the male should be read as neutral. But uh, I, you know, people can. You know, people read it as male, and you can't just change people's minds. Obviously, but. Um, there are some positive steps, like for instance, if you say, um, let me think of an example. You know, the word for uh, worker, uh, one of the words for worker, like funcionario, which means a, uh, you know, someone is working at a some space, like whatever, it doesn't matter, like a somebody who cleans yeah. the university or something. Like a, I'm forgetting the word in English. Like, what do you call somebody who just laborer? Yeah, uh, yeah kind of like laborer. Yeah, works. Uh, not exactly the same, but uh, like uh, nowadays people do like. Funcionarios and funcionarias, so they use both. So, like saying "ladies and gentlemen," it's kind of like that, but for I every see. every gendered word. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. even though it makes us very verbose, if we have to do that every time, I think it's uh, it's not a good, it's not a bad option. To be fair, it avoids yeah. the awkward having to insert at and ironically exclude people who have to use uh, you know software for visually impaired uh, reading, etc. So, yeah, right. but it's a, it's a difficult subject because there's not going to be one solution. And obviously then politics get in the way, too, when uh, one side of the other and the other, obviously, because uh, some people right. take this very, very seriously. But, uh, yeah, but in translation, yeah. that's as a translator only, it's, um, it's just difficult in general. And I hate it. Like, uh, I'd hate having to translate something <laughs> like... Uh, with a gender neutral pronouns because I'd feel like whatever my choice would be I'd be disrespecting the the author I I can't use the plural today because it doesn't work in Portuguese if I use the male mm. slash neutral a lot of people won't read it as neutral understandably so it's going to be disrespectful yeah. too because I'd be erasing their identity so it's just right. it's scary for me especially as a non-native speaker like the the whole pronouns thing is a yeah. it's a minefield for me because uh, yeah because I understand it, I agree with it. I think it's a beautiful solution for people, um, you know, who don't conform to them. What's the word? My English is slipping out. But yeah, you know, who don't, don't conform. conform to the gender yeah. binary. I guess. Yeah, exactly. You don't conform to the uh, traditional model. I guess that's a beautiful solution. A solution that unfortunately we don't have in Portuguese, but it's a minefield for me because I'm always afraid of, you know, 
saying the wrong thing or <laughs> etc. Right, right. Yeah, it's it, it is tricky. It's like a it's a highly politicized thing, but like sometimes the language you're translating it into just doesn't have yeah, that doesn't whole help. debate, doesn't have whatever all of that stuff and yeah. And there's just this thing that's missing and and there's not really a perfect solution. Yeah. Yeah, cuz sometimes my uh, a person's linguistic ability uh, evolves quicker than her her cultural knowledge. Yeah, that's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think Paul Verhoeven ran into that, funny enough, on, I think, while filming Robocop. Yeah. There's this one line where a guy says to these two uh, sex workers that he's hanging out with for the evening, well, the character says it, bitches leave. <laughs> and I think it was, like, improvised, but they decided to go with it because it's this great line and it shows what an asshole this guy is. But the director, Paul Verhoeven, you know, he's not a native yeah, English yeah. speaker. He didn't realize how rude the word bitches is yeah. at the time. Um so he just started addressing the two actresses as bitches. <laughs> so like, okay, bitches, let's try that again from the beginning. Okay, bitches, I need you to go stand over there. And you're, okay, bitches, your makeup's getting kind of yeah. messed up. We need you. Like, he had no idea that he was just insulting them so badly the whole time. And of course, like, he's the director. These are these girls. They're trying, like, they're trying not to yell at him because they don't want to damage their career. Yeah. And meanwhile, <laughs> all the American actors who are on the scene are, like, stifling laughs because it's, like, the most hilarious thing. This guy, like, very innocent. <laughs> say okay bitch number one i need you to uh, let, like your make let's touch up your makeup bitch number two okay can we get hair in here fix your hair okay bitches thank you thank you very much bitches you're doing a great job bitches not everybody's american yeah we don't expect everybody to fucking understand american culture the whole world isn't american yeah. come on you guys and i think i feel like that's one of the other reasons why i want uh writers especially english language writers to try writing translations because it's like you need to you really need to have the experience if just for a little while that everybody else on earth has yeah <laughs> Please step outside of your English language brain yeah. for a couple of hours. And, like, I, I don't think, like, Americans and English language speakers quite get just, like, how it's not normal to for everybody else. Like, that, that our culture, our language is kind of everywhere, and that's not the case for everybody else. And I don't necessarily think that's good for us because it means we can be blind to a lot yeah. of things I remember without even knowing it. Yeah. I remember also on Twitter, somebody referred to Idris Elba. Is that how you pronounce his name? The actor? Idris Elba? Ver Idris? I Idris? Yeah, so. Idris Elba. Anyway, they referred yeah. to him as African-American and he's British. Oh, yeah, they're like, it's not right. black, he's African-American. They were like, no, he's British, like, he's not American at all. He's British. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. yeah, we don't actually have the word African-American, uh, African-Portuguese in Portugal. We don't, uh, we don't oh. use it. Uh, yeah, just, you know, Portuguese, period. So you might say black Portuguese, if anything, but uh, people don't usually do that. I think that 
I don't think you can even use that distinction in the in like news or something. We don't have the like legally we don't have a, any kind of distinction. So which you know is both good and bad I guess. Uh, and there are some advantages yeah. to that. To you know, our system is completely colorblind. Obviously, at the same time, that can uh, you know uh, completely make us forget about certain institutional problems. But yeah, you know, so the, that's another yeah. subject. But yeah, no, no, it's completely different. Yeah, but the the African American thing stuck to me because I was like, but isn't he British? Why are they saying African American? Like, is, is black offensive? Um, right. But yeah. Right, right. Getting back to translation, I I think a lot would have been. A lot comes down to, I think, how much can we ask of the reader? How much should we ask of the reader or the audience? Like, yeah. can we or should we expect them to sort of shake out of their, their comfort zone a little bit? Or, like, are we yeah. pandering to them if we keep them in their That's comfort zone? Question. Or do we want to slap them in the face? Yeah. I think it was... Um, I think it was Ken Liu said, like, when he writes translations of Chinese sci-fi to English, he doesn't try to make them sound natural in English because he's like, no, I want you to be confronted with the fact that this is from a different culture. And did I want he, you to sort of learn to deal with that. Did he translate <laughs> the three-body problem? Was that him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I DNF that book. Not because of the translation. Translation is actually clearly really, really, really good. Like the prose flows really well. So if if he's not trying to sound natural, then I think he did something wrong because it sounds completely natural to me. Like the prose is incredible. <laughs> but um, I just didn't like the book that much. Like the I hated the characters, I guess. But um, yeah, regarding your question, I think it really depends on the book. Like for instance, if I'm translating Dan Brown. I'm not going to make it hard for the reader. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to simplify everything if I need to, try to make it as easy for a Portuguese reader as it is for a, an English reader. But then if I'm translating, um, well, I don't know. No, I don't know. But, uh, you know, N.K. Jemsen or something like that. Like, I'm translating somebody who needs, who asks a bit more of the reader. Actually, I actually haven't read a book, so maybe I'm just saying, you know, just saying random shit. But, um... If I'm translating an author that requires a bit more of the reader, then uh, I won't make it easy either. I might make it easy here and there if, you know, if it's just completely incomprehensible. But uh, I think it just really, really depends on the book. If it's an easy book, you should make it easy for the reader. If it's a hard book, even in the native language, then uh, in the original language, then I think it's fine to make it hard also. Just, you know, try and stick to it a a little bit closer. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the short answer of it. Yeah. 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 Obviously, um, for right. some people, this is going to sound like a real nerdish thing to say, but for some people, the learning process is actually fun. Like, I like reading, I, have to, I like having to work a little bit for it. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's the reason I bought a Kindle, actually, because I can press on the words and be like, oh, this word means this. Oh, let me, maybe it's a reference to something, and then I'm going to Google it, etc. Yeah, and I think the, it, the book being a little bit uh, demanding can be fun. Yeah, definitely. And, and I do enjoy when I'm reading something that's a bit foreign, like that feeling of foreignness. Yeah. I, it, it, it's wonderful, and I, I like kind of being shake, shaken out of what I'm used to. Um, like, I find it's so easy for me, at least, to just stick with American writing. Yeah. So when I read something that's very much not American, it's so refreshing. Yeah. It, it feels so different in a really, really, really good way. And I would really hate it if works translated yeah. for Western audiences all kind of lost that. 
Yeah, I, I wish the American <laughs> market was a bit more open to translations in general, because uh, I can understand why they're not, because, you know, you have so many good books already, like written by Americans and, you know, English people mm. and, uh, you know, Anglophones in general. So uh, you don't really need to read translations. You have a plethora of beautiful things already. But I, w I do wish it was a little bit more open, because uh, I avoid writing in Portuguese because I know I'm not going anywhere with it. I think the top mm. um, top earning author in Portugal, the SFF author, has sold like I don't know, maybe fifty thousand books ever, like the, across the entire series, and they're like eight books or something. So the, wow. and that's the top earner, yeah. Like even if I'm wrong by various orders of magnitude, I'm pre I'm completely completely sure he hasn't sold more than a hundred thousand across the entire series, and uh, I'm pretty sure he's not even sold that. So. Sometimes translation or writing in your second language directly, which is also a form of translation, I guess, is a, it's the only option for a lot of um, writers. Fortunately, it's becoming mm. more common, even though it can be a little bit discouraging when people when people ask, oh, do you know any example of a second language writer who's made it, who's got, you know, uh, sold, uh, can write really well, uh, really well and who sold his shit, etc. And people always go like, yeah, you don't have to worry, you know, Nabokov was a second language writer. And uh, yeah. yeah, and like yeah, okay, thank you. That was like sixty years ago, man. Yeah, Do you have exactly. anything more recent? Thank like, you for uh, comparing me to a genius author. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is a that is a high bar. Like, oh, just be as good yeah. as Nabokov. That's fine. Yeah, like, like oh, sure, my, no fucking problem. Yeah. <laughs> I just forgot his name, but the dude from uh, Heart of Darkness, uh, Joseph Conrad. Yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, well, Joseph Conrad right. also spoke it as a second language. And I'm like, yeah. Okay, that helps a lot. Like, I want to, I want to know about, you know, actually living authors who are working nowadays. So you know, and who yeah, made it. God. There aren't many. Cause, uh, yeah, I'm not insecure no. about it uh, anymore. <laughs> fortunately, like not very insecure at least. Uh, I do avoid a couple things when writing in English, which can uh, actually can actually be good. Like for instance, I can't describe a bus stop. Like a random example, if I had to physically describe hmm. a bus stop, like oh, it's a rectangular. Thing with blah blah I can't do that like at all I'll fail at it I, it's not gonna sound natural so I do avoid a couple huh. things but they're they're things I don't have to uh, you know they're not useful anyway so ironically speaking as a second language helps me uh, avoid a lot of fluff that I don't need because the mundane huh. is the hardest thing for me to write and to translate yeah so yeah it can be good actually and there's a lot of advantages of uh, either translating your own stuff or uh, writing as a second language I think the you know you end up Whatever you want, whether you want to or not, you're gonna end up sounding more original. And since I'm not a yeah, uh, I don't feel stuck in the in the rules. Uh, I feel I can ju I can just stray from the language whenever I want. You know, that was my learning process, which is making mistakes. So now I'm aware mm -hmm. of what's a mistake for the most part, and I can make it on purpose and be like, yeah, this is a mistake, but it sounds pretty. And uh, obviously, it's very hard <laughs> to do that in our native languages. Cause you're just gonna feel uh yeah kind of like imprisoned by it like limited hmm. all right so why don't we wrap it up we've uh talked for a while yeah. um <laughs> but thank you for coming on the show yeah, where can our listeners find your work okay so for the most part my work unfortunately is not written under my name and i got an nda so i can't even <laughs> disclose it because i used to work for oh, a, no. as a ghostwriter but okay, I haven't written much lately, but if you do want to take a look at my uh, at an example, you can find me on Strange Horizons with uh, the three knights of the half-gent. You can just type that in my name, 
or a pseudopod uh, with um, all my nightmares are named Heather, a horror story. So just write pseudopod, mm -hmm. Mario Coelho, or Strange Horizons, Mario Coelho, and you'll instantly find it. Yeah, that's the only thing I got to plug. Okay. If you do like okay. it, just send out a Okay, and we can put links to that in, in the episode description, too. All right, cool. Okay, yeah. then. All right, and how about where can people find you on social media and stuff? Oh, do you yeah. have a website? One second. Um, I'm probably going to end up deleting Twitter eventually because I hate it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, if you do want to find me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at, at M S E A B R A C O E L H O because, you know, it's my name, M Siabra Coelho, but uh, this is unpronounceable. So, yeah, mm -hmm. just type it out like this, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> Not making it easy for the yeah for the, for the audience. Good, we're we're asking a lot of our audience. That's good. We're okay. not going to coddle them yeah. by giving them words they can spell. Yeah. <laughs> okay then. So yeah, and if you do like the, if you want to send me feedback or just general thoughts on the story, my my PMs are open, so that's fine. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch for coming on. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. It was nice. All right. And that is all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. Supporters get early access to regular episodes, bonus episodes, and some of my own original fiction. Thanks to Surgery Head for creating our new theme song. Be sure to join us next time when we talk about unlikable female characters. Until then, keep writing good. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>